week of September 12th, 2021. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 555. That's triple five. The podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, at Jim Reed Books, a used bookstore, listening to ABBA and watching a replay of the U.S. Open finals, both the men's and the women's, I'm Michael Giltz. Why didn't you watch it the first time or did you Uh, watch it? I did. I'm okay. watching them again because I'm so happy. I don't Why are like you happy? rooting. I, I don't like rooting against people. That's not my nature. I don't do that in baseball. You know, the Yankees and the Braves are big, you know, big rivals. I'm not cheering for the Braves, but I don't cheer against them. I don't boo them when they're at the. You know, I like I cheer for my team, the Mets. If the Yankees aren't in the World Series, I'd be happy to see the Mets in the World Series. So it's not my nature. But for Djokovic, I make an exception. Yeah, I think you 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 aren't the only one. I apologize to our Serbian viewers, but oh, he brings out the worst in people. What an ugly crowd at the U.S. Open. It was shameful and embarrassing that the New York crowd always sucks. But the cool thing is Channel 4 in the U.K. paid Amazon Prime over a million dollars for the rights to broadcast, simulcast along with Amazon Prime, the women's final live. So Amazon Prime had the rights to Wimbledon, which is crazy in the U.K., and Channel 4 said, please let us show this live. And Amazon did, and then Amazon smartly said, we are donating this fee to promote British tennis. So goodwill was had all around, and everyone in the U.K. could watch the game on Amazon Prime or on Channel 4, since a lot of people don't have Amazon Prime. So that was very smart. And congrats to Emma Raducanu and to uh, Medvedev from Russia. Great to see. If I was in London after watching the match, I might have gone to see the ABBA Arena, which they are building. I thought it was built already. But this is kind of interesting. It's, it's a temporary structure which I did not realize. It's only going to be there for five years. So it's a very permanent temporary structure, but they're building it from mass timber. And I'm like, what the heck is that? So I started reading up on it. It's this environmental thing. Sweden is at the forefront of it. The U.S. is doing it. Very interesting. Look it up. Very cool. They'll be able to dismantle this stadium and move it to other parts of the globe if and so they choose to do so after five years. So it's very environmentally friendly. In a way, it could almost be a carbon sink rather than building with concrete, which, of course, pours a lot of pollution into the air. No surprise that the Swedes be on top of that, as Patrick von Sikowski mentioned when he was on our show last week. So that's interesting. The place seats 3,000 people. I've been wondering about this for a while. That's interesting. It has dancing areas. You can have a dancing booth for your party. My sister Leslie's going on June 3rd, so Patrick's going on June 20th. So two weeks before he goes there, we will have a report on what it's like visually, though, of course, if you go, let us know. That's of course. But, next but this year. isn't. This isn't. Uh, the band isn't going to be there. It's. They're just. They're like. They're avatars. Yeah. They're avatars. Yes. Yes. We know that. The whole world knows that. We've discussed this. And Jim Reed Books. Why am I there? Because I love bookstores. If you go to Birmingham, Alabama, and you're a book fan. You definitely want to go to Jim Reed Books. It's the best used bookstore in town. Lots of cool memorabilia and stuff as well. He does a podcast. He writes stuff and does a newsletter. And we have a report in from the publishing industry. Unit sales are up 18% over the first half of 2020 in North America. That's great to see. Profits, of course, are way up. Uh, I shouldn't say, of course, profits are way up. Why? Because of a very strong backlist, which is more profitable, because a lot of digital audiobooks are being purchased. So that boosts it up. And the sad reason is that a lot of bookstores have fewer employees right now because they don't know how to do their staffing. The, the consistency of customers is too hard to predict. The only weak point in sales for the first half of 2021 is nonfiction because we're in the post-Trump era. So we don't have a thousand political books coming out every week. And of course, we're comparing this to the first half of 2020, which was a disaster. So (laughs) bookstore sales increase the most percentage wise, but that's misleading because when you're at the bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. And when you're at the beginning of the show, there's nowhere to go but forward. So what are we going to talk about this week? Well, we're going to talk about temporary structures because you mentioned a temporary structure in London. And I was at a temporary structure in Auckland, New Zealand called The Cloud. It was built in 2011 for the Rugby World Cup. And it is still there. So <laughs> very temporary. <laughs> it's very yeah. temporarily permanent. Yeah, if uh, it's sold out, I imagine the temporary thing will just keep staying there. But five years, that's kind of cool. Then they could move it to, you know, Antarctica or South America or some other far flung part of the globe. Right. Be interesting well, to see what happens. Well, and, and you mentioned uh, book sales. We're going to be talking about music sales by the end of the show, but 
This week on Showbiz Sandbox, we're going to discover that the major chains, the major movie theater chains, that is, they're pushing people to buy or renew those monthly subscriptions. Oh, yeah, that was totally a thing. Remember that? For like a hot minute? Mm -hmm. That was like a thing. I paused mine, and then they were going to renew it, and I canceled it because I wasn't ready. Yeah, well, hey, we've barely started going back to the movies, and the chains are feeling like needy boyfriends already. Can I see you tomorrow for lunch? What about dinner? And what about a movie? When can I meet your friends? Relax, (laughs) exhibitors. We're coming back, okay? Just chill out. (laughs) Plus, award season gets going with the Venice Film Festival, and we feel certain some of their top prizes will boost Oscar hopefuls. See, si, Penelope Cruz. We're talking about you. On Inside Baseball, it's all about streaming. We will have a brief chat on ratings. Do album sales make any sense anymore? Do TV ratings matter? No, they don't. And yes, they do. But those numbers can mean free publicity. So clean up your act, pronto. Do you really want the only time people talk about Hulu being when it raises the price of a subscription? Come on, people. Oh, by the way, Hulu just raised the price of a subscription. So FYI. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. We have a link to ComScore in our show notes. We're looking for the week of September 12th, all seven days, except For Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, we included Monday in last week's total. So this new total is the total overall, and the money made for this week is only from Tuesday through Sunday. Just a little factual detail there for you. So Tuesday through Sunday, how much money did Shang-Chi make? $96 million. A great hold for that movie. Worldwide, it's at $260 million. I had my doubts about all the TV shows that Marvel announced. Big doubts. But like WandaVision, that seems to be a one and done. And it's a unique thing that you couldn't have done as a film, the way they satirize TV. Uh, Other shows and other things that they're doing look really, really smart. I just saw a trailer for Hawkeye, surely the least interesting Avenger of them all. Not a fan of Hawkeye, not in in terms of the movie and Jeremy Renner, not interested in the least. Their series, which looks like it's a temporary one, is set at Christmas time. Also something you probably wouldn't do with a Marvel movie. It's funny. It's light. There's a young female companion who's also an archer. And by God, I had no interest. And now I kind of want to watch it. So they're really doing a great job on streaming and TV and all that stuff. I doubted them, but they know how to make money and keep people hooked. So Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings made $96 million, a great hold. At number two is Free Guy which made $38 million this week. It's at $280 million. Guess what? For the third week in a row, it's the number one film in China where it's made $75 million. Don't tell the government it's about video games. <laughs> They're be like, no, you can't see that movie. At or you can is- only see it from eight to nine <laughs> on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Why not say the joke again? Use it next week. The power of three. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? Hey, it's a, it, it's a punchline. What can it I is. say? Shang-Chi made $96 million. Free Guy about $40 million. Malignant is number three, the first new movie on the chart. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It opened last week, and it made about 2 to $3 million. This week, it opened up wider. It, may, it has now made $12 million this week. It's at $15 million worldwide. Not a very good opening for it uh, in North America. Not a strong thing overall. But, you know, it only costs $40 million to make. In a real world, real time, James Wan's film probably would have been profitable. It may still get there. It's at 15 million. It only, well, no, it needs to get 120 million. It's going to be a tough haul, but we'll have to see how it does. It's probably got more territories to go. But like so many movies, you can't really say how it would have done in the real time, real world. But out of the gate, it looks like people are rejecting it. So it's one of those films that probably would not have done well in any circumstance. So, Malignant number three with 12 million, tied with Paw Patrol. Surely the exact opposite of Malignant, a horror flick to a kiddie movie. Paw Patrol made another 12 million. That's closing in on $100 million worldwide. Candyman made 12 million. Stand By Me made 12 million. Stand By Me is a Taiwanese love story starring Mason Lee, the son of Ang Lee, which I did not know, but he's a Taiwan actor. That movie made $12 million this week. It looks like opening in China. Now, This is a 2019 Taiwanese film. I have no idea what money it made originally. All the numbers are confusing, and you can see how easily I get confused. If you know what the overall grosses are for for Stand By Me or if the movie's any good, tell us. 
Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call us and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Or we're on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle. In fact, if you follow us, you'd know what music sales were even before we get to it on today's show because that information was just sent out through our Twitter account. Also, facebook.com. Slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. Staying right in China, the next film on our list is Raging Fire, a Hong Kong set thriller. $9 million it made this week. Or I should say it was made in Hong Kong. I don't know where it's set. $9 million this week. It's at $190 million worldwide. It stars Donnie Yen, but a co-star is Nicholas C. I'm apologize for not looking at the pronunciation of his name. It's spelled T-S-E, and he is giving up his Canadian citizenship to embrace China. His wife is close friends with an actress who was just scrubbed from the internet as punishment for whatever thing the government decided she wasn't supposed to do. There's a rumor swirling around China saying a crackdown is coming on talent with dual citizenship. And so this guy said, all right, I'm going to embrace Chinese citizenship because that's the only way to go forward or I have to start from scratch, you know, coming back to America or going to some other part of the world. And despite this, despite him renouncing his Canadian citizenship, some comments online said he was two-faced and just doing it to make money. Ouch, you really can't win. That is a tough position to be in. So right below Raging Fire is Jungle Cruise, another $6 million, and it passed the $200 million mark. The Tomorrow War is in China. That made another $6 million. That's at $14 million and counting. In most of the world, it's available on Amazon Prime. Then there's a, a teen romance, uh, of the, the second of a trilogy. It's called After We Fell. It made $6 million. It's at $13 million and counting. Uh, the first movie was After We Collided. Then comes After We Fell. And up soon will be the finale, which we assume is called uh, After We Stood Back Up and Dusted Ourselves Off. You know, I, I saw a movie over the weekend that I thought was being released theatrically. Uh, I can't find it anywhere on this list here. It's called Queen Pins. It stars, uh, of course, uh, you, you probably know this, Kristen Bell and Kirby Howell Baptiste. And it was directed by Aaron uh, Godet and Gita Pulapili. Pulapili. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it was fun. Vince Vaughn stars in it. It was a fun little comedy. Uh, but uh, I can't find it anywhere. I mean, it opened overseas. I see it made a few dollars overseas, but uh, how much money did it make overall? Not a lot. Oh, well, that's why it's not on our chart. We don't cover everything, of course. But no, but I, could... I, I mean, I, wasn't it released in, in the U.S.? It's, I thought it was released in the U.S. this weekend, but apparently not. What, what's it called? What's Queen it called? Pins. Queen no, Pins. It's I don't, the the I don't tagline, by the chart. way, uh, the tagline, couponing goes criminal. <laughs> well, I see at number eight in, the, in North America is The Card Counter, the Paul Schrader film. Uh, that grossed $1.1 million. It's on 580 screens. That's a very strong sign of life by our new standards for the art house circuit. So that's great to see. That movie, some people turned out for it. It's very hard to get older people and art house people back in the theaters. They're the most reluctant. But they did show up pretty well for The Card Counter. Now, a 2,000 per screen average is nothing to write home about. But right now it is because it made over a million dollars in one week. That's pretty good results for that movie. So that's good to see. And we have other films like F9 made four million, Don't Breathe 2, The Boss Baby, and so on and so forth. In general, the summer box office in North America is at $1.7 billion. Hey, it's not the lowest ever. You got to go back to 1992 when the summer box office was $1.73 billion as opposed to $1.75 billion. But hey, that's not bad. You, you know, go back further to the 80s and the 70s and you'd find out it was, you know, better. But for the modern era, this isn't the worst. It's the worst in, you know, 30 years, but it's not the worst. Year to date, our box is at $2.2 billion. One problem, you know what, in music, a big chunk of the revenue come from subscriptions. 86% of all revenue in music sales come from subscriptions. People like me paying for Spotify. That's actually the RIAA just uh, announced that it's 84% in the first half of the year. It's 80, 86%. Oh, 84%. I'm sorry. It's 86 million people are subscribers and 84% of revenue comes from paid subscriptions. And then like 14% is from digital and physical sales. And then 2% is other stuff. So yeah, oh, okay. when you look at that in movies, they say, hey, 
We want people to subscribe to movies. Pay us $25 a month, which is far more than most people go to the movies twice a month. And go to movies all you want. Do it all year long. Just buy a subscription. I had one. I paused it. And then I canceled it because they were about to reactivate it. And I'm like, I'm not going to the movies two or three times a week. I'm not even going twice a month. I'm only going to drive-ins right now. So that is happening. I've been barraged with authors. Regal Cinema said, hey, 18 bucks a month, 21 bucks a month, $24 a month. They've got all these price levels, depending on where you are and how many chains are near you. That's cool. And it's unlimited movies. AMC wants me to come back again for $25 a month. I can see three movies a week, which is plenty. And go to any AMC theater in the country. And my first month will only be $5. That's nice, but I'm not ready. Do you see a lot of theater owners saying, hey, we want to keep that, you know, that was really gaining momentum. Do they see that as part of the wave of the future? Absolutely. But not right now. I mean, I well, don't not, think. Not, to, not with COVID, but do they see like, this is where we, not like this will be a nice little addition, but this could be like the driver of our business. The way it's driving uh, no, more, music. M- more of it's, it's more. An add-on. It's it's for people who really want to go uh, multiple times per per month and who want a discount on it because it winds up being discounted. It's a way to help those frequent moviegoers discount the movie ticket because they tend to buy more right. uh, concessions and food when they're there. Well, I think they're wrong. I think when it gets to $20 a month, well, like Regal offers it for $18 a month, if the one theater near me that's Regal was covered... I could go for that level, $18 a month. I could go to the only Regal Cinema near me, all I wanted. That's like an 18 screener. They show a lot of stuff. Uh, It's just not the most convenient theater. I could go there all I wanted for $18 a month. When it gets to that sort of price level, I think you're going to see just the way you do with music and HBO and Netflix and everything else. People will say, yeah, that's worth it for me. I won't have to think about it, $18 a month. I can go to the movies when I want. I don't have to worry about it. I'll make enough use of it. It'll be fine. Like my gym membership. I think that's going to turn out to be a much bigger part of the business. Uh, maybe even, you know, 30, 40, 50% of sales. I, I think it could happen. So I don't think it should be seen as just a little, you know, add on because then all you're doing is chipping away at the people who spend the most money at your box office. Yeah. And that was always the fear. I think, uh, you know, one thing they don't want is, is uh, everybody thinks, oh, well, these models work on breakage, meaning it's the, the people who pay for something and then don't use it. Kind of like, me, gym my gym, <laughs> yeah, gym memberships. I yeah. do go to the gym and I generally just check on the equipment. It's, it's usually still there. And <laughs> then I come back the following year. Um, well, those are the people who go to a movie like the James Bond film, No Time to Die, cool final trailer. That movie did get approved for release in China by the censors. But of course, it doesn't have a release date yet. We'll have to see if it gets one. Shang-Chi is still waiting in the wings. Also and, waiting and in the many wings. people think it will be waiting for a long, long time. Because right, which of means, course, yeah. It, well, mainly because the, the lead actor, I guess he's Canadian, he said some stuff in the past about how his parents, while growing up, uh, would tell him about you know their horrible upbringing in China and how bad China was and how bad the government was to its citizens in China. And you mean like many, years ago. Men, many of them starved to death during the Great Leap Forward and naughty things like that? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, I <laughs> guess they he, mentioned history. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess you know he said this in interviews and now it's coming back to haunt him. No, it's well, not haunting him. Let's know. The government is saying nobody can ever say anything negative about us. We won't show your movie ever. So it's he didn't do something wrong or have a problem. It's the government, which is unreasonable. They won't show any movie that has anybody who ever said anything remotely negative. That's untenable. That's why you should really consider China just to add on because you can't depend on them to release your movie. But you can depend on award season. It comes around every year. Venice kicked off the award season. I feel like what's happening? What's going on? Uh, Venice, uh, it's flooding. Uh, there's a lot of water everywhere. People ride around in boats, uh, (laughs) and they usually have people singing to them while they do this. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, a lot of pigeons just, you know, don't look up with your mouth. What about at the film festival? Did anything happen there? Oh, well, yeah. Um, apparently, uh, some movies were shown on a big screen, uh, and the big winner was the French abortion drama happening which won the Golden Lion. And And we'll be playing in Texas very soon. Yes, but only for six months or six weeks. Six weeks. There you go. You blew uh, the joke. Good joke. I blew the joke. You had it. You had it in your back pocket. Good one. Yeah. Well, Well, the the runner-up or grand jury prize was Paolo Sorrentino's coming-of-age tale, Hand of God, which is a Netflix film. 
And also from Netflix was Best Director winner James Campion, who won with The Power of the Dog, A Tale of Toxic Masculinity. And if I've read the trailer right, some not-so-subtle homoeroticism. I don't know what's going on there, but Benedict Cumberbatch, something's going on there. That's, that's what I think. Well, and actor Maggie Gyllenhaal scored great reviews and uh, a Best Screenplay Award for her directorial debut, The Lost Daughter. Uh, and Penelope Cruz for Almodovar's Parallel Mothers. So it's nice to see uh, Almodovar still going strong. Yeah, I, I really think uh, Penelope Cruz and Maggie Gyllenhaal are both very strong possibilities for Oscars. Uh, you know, you, it's very early days. You've got to see exactly what, uh, you know, what the what the movies are. But, um, uh, you know, it seems like a really good possibility. She, uh, of course, she won uh, Penelope Cruz, won an Oscar for Victor Cristina Barcelona. Uh, under Woody yeah, Allen oh yeah, that, back in 2008. And she's been nominated for Volver, which was a great performance, and Nine, which is not that good a movie, but good for her. So, you know, she's won a Best Supporting Actress. Now she said, hey, maybe a Best Actress fun would be fun. And But, you know, Maggie, if you get nominated, I'm rooting you on. And if Jake needs a date, you know, I'm, I'm available. Yeah, um, let me ask you this. Uh-huh. Um, what about Kristen Stewart, who was in the uh, Spencer, the Pablo oh, Lorraine the- movie about, about uh, Princess Diana? Well, I think it sounds like it's a very cold movie. So I don't think, and I think like the Jackie film, it could be something that she would get a nomination for, obviously. But beyond that, it doesn't sound like it's the sort of film that Oscar voters will warm up to. But we're saying this all sight unseen. It's a long time to go before Oscars. You know, it's no big deal whether she wins or loses something at this stage because it's too early in the day. What about uh, Timothy Chalamet for Dune? Because uh, God knows no, no, everybody no, no. was talking about Dune. Dune, Dune, well, Dune, Dune, Dune. That's so all that's I heard from Venice. Jump, like Mad Max Fury Road, that is going to dominate technical categories. Unlike Mad Max Fury Road, I doubt it's going to be a big player in the major awards, but I haven't seen it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's a spectacle. And it sounds like it's kind of jaw-dropping, and I'm going to see it in IMAX, which means traveling to another city. We don't have a proper IMAX screen in Birmingham, Alabama. All we have is a Cinerama Dome type thing where it goes on the round ceiling, you know, like you're going to go to the planetarium. It's like, no, you do not want to see a movie that way. Is that what you literally, you do literally go up to the movie theater and go, "Mm, no. Uh, no, I, I bought a ticket to see Dunkirk on IMAX in Birmingham and then got there and realized what it was and was like, oh, what a disaster it was. I had to go to Atlanta, to Nashville to see it properly. Really? It was, yeah, it was terrible, terrible. You can't watch a movie in those round things. It's a joke. It's awful. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Alan Parker, uh, when he released Avita, he released it at the Cinerama Dome. He spent four weeks flattening the screen in there. How, how and do you it was flatten a very- the screen? Well, he basically just moved the screen up and uh, he put in a temporary screen is what he did. Wow. So when you see a movie at the Cinerama Dome, it's literally like the planetarium thing where it's round. Oh, no, 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 no. It's just at the front of the room. It's a curved screen. So it like wraps. Around oh, no, no. This, this is the planetarium where you're lying back in your seat looking up at the ceiling. You know, when they oh, show you the God, stars. No. That's what no. this was a planetarium showing IMAX movies on the ceiling. It was horrible horrible so nobody should ever go see a movie like that <laughs> so the cinerama dome is just a curved screen but it's in front okay yeah all right look yeah. cool. i've said big deal like three times you have i have i've said i big. have not been okay well i have not been paying attention because i would know that if you said big and deal that it must be time for big deal or big whoop our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and we tell you we tell you you don't even have to think about it we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story could actually be our inside baseball story of the week because it's kind of major news. The new head okay. of Paramount is just a kid at heart. It's Brian Robbins who is jumping from Nickelodeon to one of the world's most iconic studios. By the way, Brian Rob- Robbins, if that name sounds familiar, think director of Norbit. Okay. He was the director of Norbit. Uh, Of course, Paramount is just a baby in the game where it counts, uh, and that is streaming. That's where it counts. And uh, that is uh, part of the problem, by the way. In any case, Robbins knows digital and how to shake things up. After almost 20 years, Nickelodeon was pushed by Robbins to expand on SpongeBob SquarePants with a show dedicated to Patrick, one of the side characters. The result? One of its biggest hits in years. He's also got a kid show titled, uh, well, he's tied tied in, tied in. To the NFL football games after a special he touted proved a huge hit 
Robbins has an easy task. He just mm-hmm. needs to make hits. You know, yeah. really? Just, you know, get those, get Paramount Plus to be where Netflix is. No problem. Uh, he needs to make a lot of hits, by the way. Some for the movies, but mostly, let's face it, for the streamer. And some for the movies and the streamer. But really, the question is, big deal or big whoop? Well, let me ask you. Uh, we said that uh, Paramount is just starting in streaming. And you said that's part of the problem, by the way. What, what, what do you mean? So, okay, all, all summer, Sherry Redstone has been complaining about Jim Giannopoulos, who Brian Robbins is replacing. Jim Giannopoulos, old film guy, came mm-hmm. from 20th Century Fox. He's an old Hollywood guy. He's got great relationships, great agency relationships, great talent relationships. People love this guy. Uh, and but he was Sherry in, didn't. But his Sherry boss didn't. didn't. <laughs> he was brought into Paramount to basically turn Paramount Pictures around. The year before he came in, it lost $450 million. The year he got there, he turned it around. It was making money, but it was only 10% of the business, 10% of Viacom CBS's business. What Sherry knows and what Sherry needs is to turn Paramount Plus into a streaming powerhouse so it can compete with Disney Plus, so it can compete with HBO Max, so it can compete with uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime, so that she can then sell Viacom CBS. Right Right now, they're so far behind that by the time everything gets solidified and people start going, you know, which of these services am I going to keep? Well, Peacock just launched. It's not like... Yes, they're also facing the same problems. Well, it's a... Is it a problem or is it just we've entered a new area, new business, and we're going to be all right, you know? I mean... Well, the thing with Peacock is Comcast isn't looking to sell, okay? So they don't have this timeline problem that... Well, they're not looking to sell off, but... Viacom CBS is not looking to sell off Paramount Plus or Paramount either. They just want to make the company more valuable so the current owners can sell it to someone else. Correct. Right. It's not about flipping and something, you know, getting rid of it. No, the whole company, they want it to be stronger because there's a big opportunity. So why is this a problem, though? This is what Brian Robbins' game is, right? He was at Awesomeness TV. Now, that was his big digital play. Not exactly a rousing success. It went from deep-pocketed investors and evaluation of $650 million at one point to ultimately being sold off for $50 million. And so his reward, like all white guys, was to get a job at Nickelodeon. And now he's the head of Paramount. <laughs> right. I guess he's doing a good job at Nickelodeon. It sounds this like is it's- his, This is his third promotion in three years. So he is <laughs> right. li- literally... So I guess uh, what well, Why would you seeing- get promoted after Awesomeness TV? After you had something, lots of money raring ahead and then he's got to sold it off for pennies that's not a well, big success story i mean third promotion at paramount invite i know but, what, but why yeah. did you pick him up <laughs> oh, i don't know yeah. uh so so here's the thing you know as it is paramount is already a shell of what it used paramount pictures i'm only talking about paramount pictures not viacom not cbs not nickelodeon I'm talking about Paramount Pictures, the powerhouse studio that, you know, used well, to they, release. They, yeah, they've been handcuffed. They have, they've, nobody's been given the money to make movies. They had a power struggle at Viacom CBS. Paramount Pictures was left in the lurch. There was nobody in charge, nobody given a budget, nobody allowed to make movies. So it's of their own doing. It's not that the company was suddenly faltering or having problems. But if you don't give them money to make movies, they can't make movies, right? Right. Well, and so they have yeah, they, two movies. They have... Three movies. Um, well, Upcoming movies. Clifford the Big Red Dog. Right. And they have uh, Paw Patrol. And they have uh, Bob, SpongeBob SquarePants, which those two movies were released. And they were successful. Okay. Yeah. But that's, those are their franchises now. Okay. They're franchises that they are, you know, their they're legacy franchises like Mission Impossible and Top Gun. They basically let Tom Cruise, apparently Tom Cruise was the one that moved those movies. He was the one that said, I want these movies to be released in 2022. I don't want people going to the movie theater where we will have a suppressed box office if we open in 2021. Let's push these movies to 2022. And Jim Giannopoulos said, okay, let's do it. Sherry Redstone said, that's it, Jim. I have had it. That's it. Brian, take over for Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, you don't say no to Tom Cruise, and he's right. Of course they'll have a suppressed box office. Every movie out there has a suppressed box office. Even the ones people are calling hits, like Shang-Chi. Of course they'd make more if people didn't have to mask up and weren't worried about the Delta variant. Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog was a hit. That's a a movie they're going to build on. They're already making a sequel to that. And they had a couple... You know, arty films that went straight to streaming, like The Trial of the Chicago 7 and things like that. So they had a bad 2020. There's no doubt about it. Uh, well, they sold so off the, movies like 
Right. Well, they did. They had to. Right. They did because there was. Yeah. yeah. So, but that's a problem everybody's had, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a problem. The whole. Right. So, I mean, I'm not sure that I don't see Paramount as some sort of wounded duck, except for the fact that they, you know, had the pandemic and had a power struggle. So nobody was given the carte blanche to go make movies. So, I mean, is this challenge really that big? If you give him a budget, he gets to make a lot of stuff. Well, I will say this is the, yeah, but he is streaming centric. He is streaming focused. His job is to basically build the streamer. And that is the same thing over at Disney. And I will say here, this is, and this, this story will parallel another story we're about to talk about. This is the one hand taketh away. We will talk about the one hand giveth in a moment, I'm sure. Why? I'm confused. Theatrically. I'm only talking about from the theatrical perspective. Well, that's foolish the because the best way to build up a great streaming library is to have big theatrical movies that come onto your streamer as well as original stuff on the streaming site. It's not to make big theatrical movies for a streamer. Marvel is not making $200 million movies to put on its streaming service intentionally. It's making stuff geared towards streaming like uh, Disney's Mandalorian or Marvel's WandaVision, stuff uniquely appropriate for streamer that wouldn't work on film so if his goal is just to make streaming stuff he's going to miss out on the chance to make lots of big movies that can spawn off new franchises in the theater so we'll have to see if that's what his uh take is but that would be a mistake well should we go to the one hand yeah uh, whatever you're talking about i have no idea go right to it okay here's here's uh the the one hand uh giveth and that is Ah. this this week disney announced the movie it so i guess it here, it's, let me what, say, what, you comment on it because okay. you're the guy who can comment. So this week, Disney announced that the movies it is, in fact, contractually obliged to release as theatrical exclusives will be released as theatrical exclusives. Yes, 20th Century Fox films have an output deal with HBO. So Disney could not throw them on Disney+. Plus. They had no right to do that. So this week, when Disney said West Side Story, The Last Duel, The King's Man, and Ron's Gone Wrong would all be theatrical exclusives for at least 45 days, it was stating the obvious, not showing a renewed commitment to theatrical. Now, when it announced the Marvel movie The Eternals would get a 45-day window, that was news. But Disney isn't done experimenting yet. The animated musical Encanto gets a 30-day window starting November 24th and then moves to tw- Disney Plus when? Christmas Eve. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? It is a big deal. It's being considered a big deal. And in, I think they're wrong because they had it, no choice. Well, they had no choice, but the and the Eternals, they had no choice with either. And here's why. Kevin Feige, the head of Marvel, basically said, you are not going to Black Widow the Eternals, period, end of story. You're just not going to do it. There's too many players. We'd have to pay. The payout would be too huge. You know you'd have to do it, i.e. Scarlett Johansson. Uh, so and it would be not, stupid. And it would be you, stupid to turn it yes. into a, it would be dumb. It's not that like, well, it wouldn't be nice. It's like, no, it would be financially and creatively and commercially stupid. It would annoy everybody, piss them off. You'd have to fork out a lot of money, but they did have a choice and they chose not to. Warner Brothers chose to fork over a couple hundred million dollars. Disney could have done that on the Eternals. It would have been a dumb decision commercially. And I think they made right. the right choice. You can have 45 days in the theater. Guess what? When it shows up on Disney Plus, everyone will be excited. Just as excited as they would be if it was day and date. They really don't expect that movie to be playing on Disney Plus the day it's in theaters. So the idea that anybody would be disappointed or not want to subscribe to Disney Plus because oh, I got to wait 45 days. It's like it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So no, they would be asked. They would be fools. They would be fools to n- put it out day and date. Here's why I think this is a big deal. West Side Story, The Last Duel, these are all movies. And as as uh, the CEO of Disney would say, these are now data points. They can now look at these data oh, points. Oh, for go, God's sake. Not when during a COVID pandemic. I'm so, just playing the, the CEO card. They had that, no choice. They can pretend all they want. They had no choice. So p- proudly announcing these movies as if they're somehow supporting theaters and exhibition when they had no damn choice based on the contracts in place, they couldn't put on Disney plus it goes to HBO. So why would they maximize theatrical? We're, we're pushing all of these to next year. That's what they could have done. So they did. So that's, that's the choice you think. And why would they do that? Cause they don't want theaters to die in the vine. Cause they made, tens of billions of dollars from theatrical. So maybe they're being smart and saying, we don't want them to have zero product because they'll go out of business. 
and we want them around next year when we're showing our next Marvel Avenger movie, right? Right. And hey, wait a second. Encanto, first of all, it's getting a 30-day window. I think announcing that it's coming to uh, Disney Plus early, I understand why they're doing that. I think announcing that, uh, I get what they're doing. It's it's all for the holidays and you know everybody subscribes so that you have something to show the kids over the holidays. But announcing when it's I just uh, you have to I don't, you have to announce you want people to know, but I think it's stupid because they're yanking a movie from the theaters the day before the biggest ten days of movie going of the year. <laughs> well, my would question ra- is: Would you rather have them seeing that movie at home for six bucks, or would you rather have them take the kids on Christmas Eve to this movie they've heard great reviews on, and oh my god, it's so much fun? And you know what? You could see if after twenty five days it dies on the vine, you could say, "All right, we're going to go to we're going to here's a here's a Christmas gift for you," and Canto is in your home. Right. Or if it's charging up the box office charts and still making money 28 days in, you stay quiet and let it play through Christmas and New Year's. And then you put it on Disney Plus. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. It's- Why yank a family film that you spent two, I assume, 100 and $150 million on right before the busiest 10 days of movie going in the entire year? Yes, they're opening in Thanksgiving. That's smart. But I would let it play through Christmas if it fell off the chart. If it was out of the theaters, nobody was seeing it. It was down to $2 million a week by Christmas Eve, which wasn't going to happen. But if it did, I'd say, all right, let's just put it on Disney+. Play. Here's an early Christmas gift from Disney. Well, if you think about it, um, first of all, you've got uh, Kevin Feige over at Marvel, who has some sway there, obviously, right? I mean, he kind of came in and said, you're not, you're not doing this with the Eternals. Well, he's a top exec at Disney. He's, he's, he's overseeing right. their most profitable, popular areas. So, of course, he has sway. Right, right, he's- right. But just follow me here. Over at Pixar Disney Animation, there used to be a top executive, and let's not get into why there isn't one now, but there really isn't one there that can hold sway and force things like, hey, you know what? You've released the last two Pixar movies directly to Disney+. Plus. The next one, you're not doing because I'm losing all morale over at Pixar. People are pissed. The Pixar animators are not happy. And the Disney animators are kind of following them and saying, well, at least we got a theatrical release, but they're not exactly, you know, over the moon either. Well, Pixar has got Pete Doctor at the top and he has a lot of sway. <laughs> he is well, not, he is not creatively, a Yes, but not from, not from a business standpoint. Creatively, I, you're absolutely correct. He can make any movie he wants. However, when it comes to strategy and distribution strategy, that was if that. John Lasseter were still there. How do you how do you know he doesn't have any insight or 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 sway there? And of course, uh, and of course, Encanto is not a Pixar film. It's a Disney animation film. That's what I'm saying. Well, no, no, no. You said there was nobody at Pixar to speak up for it. Encanto is not a Pixar film, so it's it's a Disney movie. So it's it's got nothing to do with Pixar whatsoever. Isn't Pete Doctor in charge of both Disney animation and Pixar? Pretty sure he is. All right. Because that's what John Lasseter, he took over for John Lasseter. John Lasseter, who had a track record, not only with Disney Animation and Pixar, but of, uh, you know, distribution strategy and business decisions. He had a little bit more of a heft uh, in coming in and, and throwing his weight around uh, when it well, comes well, to that kind Pete, of thing. Pete Doctor is the CCO of Pixar. Jennifer Lee is the CCO of Disney Animation. I'm sure... And Clark Spencer is the president of Disney Animation. I'm sure Pete Doctor is consulted and, you know, they all are collegial together. But technically, I don't believe he has a role there right now. Uh, okay. not, a, not an official role. But that's okay. It's Disney. There are powerful people in place there. They make Disney a lot of money. I'm sure they listen to them. Disney is dis- It's not because there's no exec to yell and scream. It's because they're deciding as a business decision, this is the best way forward. Not the worst one, but like you, I think they should have just shut up announce it for Thanksgiving. If it falls off the charts commercially, then say, oh, here's an early Christmas gift for you. If it's still going strong, leave it in the theaters and let it play through Christmas and New Year's when you're going to make another $100, $200 million. <laughs> you yeah. know, well, why not? And in New Year, kids can have Encanto in their, you know, New Year's, uh, what do you call it? The fifth, you know, the 12th day of Christmas. What's it called? Uh, not Boxing yeah. Day, but, uh, but uh, the Three Kings Day. On Three Kings Day, they can watch Encanto. Well, as somebody pointed out recently, all of the Marvel spinoffs that are now on Disney Plus and even the Star Wars spinoffs, guess where they all started? In movie theaters. So you need to build up right. the next franchises. In any case, uh, you know, things that are on TV. Are you ready you- for some football? 
Right. Football. American football, because most everyone but Netflix is betting big on live sports, with American football being the most expensive content in North America. Now we know why. In a world of fragmentation and endless options, football remains a huge draw. On NBC, 26 million people watched the Super Bowl champions from Tampa Bay beat the Dallas Cowboys in the season opener in the last two seconds. I mean, it was unbelievable. <laughs> what the, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, that's the biggest total audience in six years, and it includes viewers on NBC and Peacock. And it's not just the NFL. On ESPN, college football featured Notre Dame beating Florida State in a rare Sunday night game for the, that league. And in fact, people were wondering which one of them was the Chicago Bears and which one of them was the LA Rams. Oh, wait, no, that was the other game that was on Sunday night. I'm, I'm sorry. Anyway, some 7 million people tuned into that Notre Dame game, the second biggest audience for a Sunday game over Labor Day weekend in 25 years. And neither total includes out-of-home viewers like, say, you know, if you were at a bar. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. They bet big on sports, live sports, and it pays off. I mean, 26 million people. That's like ER numbers. Remember the days when ER would get 30 oh, million people a week? Yeah. I mean, there were bigger shows before that, too. But that's like the most recent huge blockbuster or The Walking Dead at its peak. Those are big, big numbers. Now, speaking of numbers, Apple's looking at some numbers, as in numbers that it has to pay out because how can DJs offer their mixes on streaming services? Companies barely know what's in the mix. So who gets paid and how much do they get paid? And who figures it all out in a world where songs are added to streaming services by the tens of thousands every day? I mean, Michael, you and I, before we started today, we added our own songs. Shazam! Wait, I'm, wait, no, no. I was looking behind me to see if that guy showed up. Uh, no, I guess we're not talking about the kitty superhero who is not coming to the rescue for Apple, but Shazam. No, <gasps> still doesn't work. The app that, uh, it's the app, you know, the app that identifies the song you're hearing on the radio. That app, that technology will be coming to the rescue. Apple owns Shazam and they're using that to correctly identify the songs in a DJ's mix. For the first time a DJ can post a mix, Apple Shazam will identify who should get paid and fans can jam to the music. Apple is also sending some money to the DJs. You know, those guys that stand at the front of the room that jump up and down and, and, and press they buttons. Cr they creatively create the mix and flow, uh, which is makes them popular and helps bring artists to life. So let's not belittle them. They're also getting yes, money. Yes, but it's much funnier if I pretend that all they do is put a needle onto a vinyl. Who else gets money? Clubs, festivals, and indie labels that support this, all, all of it. They support all that creativity. Normally, they wouldn't get any money. None of those people would get money since they're not technically rights holders to the songs being played. So, Michael, all you really need are two turntables and a microphone, baby. And you need to tell me, is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. They, they figured out a very difficult uh, thing, and they're going to make it happen in a huge area of creativity and a way of playing music, listening to music, discovering and exploring new artists and bringing new people to light. Uh, the talent that our DJs can have bigger audiences than ever because now lots of people can access their mixes. Uh, I think it's a, a great addition to uh, what they offer. So it's uh, other people are going to have to pick up the pace and figure it out for Spotify and elsewhere because I think it's going to make anybody who's into that type of experience and environment really want to get Apple Music. Well, okay, a couple things here. Uh, What's interesting to me, and I know I'm about to simplify this, but Shazam started from technology based on music thumbprints. They would give you a, you know, like a track thumbprint and you would have to submit your tracks to be thumbprinted. And then of course, it, when they played on the radio, uh, the thumbprint would be there and Shazam would listen or the technology would listen and go, oh, oh yeah, that that's Led Zeppelin's song or, or that's a Drake song. Uh, and so that's the funny thing is this has come full circle because the reason that technology existed is so that the record companies could monitor radio stations and say, what are you really playing? Thanks for your playlist. But what are you really playing? We want or to that, know because or that's, that's my song or that's my song in your mix and you didn't pay me for the sampling rights. Right. Exactly. So and that's that's how the technology started. It turned into Shazam. And now Shazam is actually going full circle back to actually helping people get paid for the music that is appearing in different mixes. Kind of interesting. That is. Uh, by speaking of getting paid, the the usually it's after a third season in streaming when you make big bucks, the fourth season renewal. In the old yeah. days, it was after the fifth season because they hit syndication rights. There was, you know, 100 episodes. Now you could strip it in syndication. That's when sitcom stars would cash out. Nowadays, you don't wait so much. Ted Lasso, everybody involved in that 
that show just got big paydays for season three. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I have to say season two, I don't know if you've been watching it. Not as good, right? It's not as good, but it definitely gets better. Okay. Like as it as it goes, like the last, uh, I think I'm on uh, episode eight. I was like, wow, that episode was the best episode, and it all kind of led to that episode. It was kind of all right. It was, cool. it was good. All right, good. I'm looking forward to it. Well, okay. So since we were talking about Apple, and by the way, you said that like Spotify would have to like come up this, uh, you know, this technology, this audio thumb printing. It's open source, so somebody else could come up and create their own service, but right. they'd have to use the thumbprints. In any case, let's go back to Apple because, you know, you win some, you lose some. One hand give it, one hand take it away. We've already talked about that this week. Uh, now, the same week, Apple scores a win for DJs and everyone in the dance arena. It sort of loses in court. Sort of. I mean, maybe a judge ruled Apple cannot block developers using its app store from sending customers elsewhere to make recurring payments, which is why you should come to us and make a recurring payment. Uh, <laughs> once a person has paid for the app and Apple gets its 30%, they don't necessarily get 30% of every in-game purchase as long as the game sends them elsewhere to do it. However, the judge did not rule the app store is a monopoly and the gaming company Epic must pay Apple its cut for all the fees they collected while this battle was ongoing. So who's the winner? Really the courts. I mean, let's face it, because this will surely be appealed. So is it a big deal or a big whoop? Or a big wait and see. And I think it's the latter. Not all, Both of them will be appealing this, perhaps, because Epic's like, they are a monopoly, and Apple says, we hate this ruling. This is billions of dollars at stake, so uh, nothing has been decided. Uh, I, I think the judge's ruling was pretty convincing in terms of uh, of terms of Apple not being able to keep them from doing what they want to do in terms of later purchases. Uh, but in terms of a monopoly, I don't know. It's pretty hard to, I don't know. He's <laughs> like overwhelming success is not an example of a monopoly. I go, I kind of thought it was overwhelming success. Like you well, dominate no, the market. You can be, uh, you can dominate the market provided that you are not doing anything to harm consumers. So no, that's not that the definition of a monopoly. Harming consumers is not the, unless you're Robert Bork, the, the Robert Bork's only concern is, is it cheaper for people? And if it is, who cares? Then it's fine. But the other, but the definition of a monopoly is you don't harm consumers. That's the Robert Bork definition that has taken over the far right. The idea that as long as you are in the short term paying less money, it must be okay. That is not a proper definition of monopoly. Many people push back against that. You know, Amazon is not a monopoly because, okay, they and Walmart have wiped out every local business in the country, but still your towels are, you know, two cents cheaper. You just have, don't have a job, <laughs> you know? So there's much bigger ways of looking at it than simply is the price lower today than it was yesterday. But anyway, we're talking about games and China is now slow walking approval of new video and mobile games amidst its battle against gaming addiction. And of course, the stocks for some major gaming companies are now taking serious hits in China because the government's crackdown seems to be happening in lots of different ways. And it's very serious and it's not going away anytime soon. We joke about it, about you can only play a video game if you're a kid, you know, for an hour a night on Friday and Saturday. But uh, this is a big financial repercussions. All the things that they're doing are going to have big financial repercussions, make it harder for companies to do business, harder for people to predict the future or know what they can and can't do. That's not healthy for a growing economy. And besides, I wish they'd take on TikTok. If they're going to slow walk something, why not TikTok? <laughs> oh, God, don't get me started. In any case, uh, in regards to the Apple decision, it's probably one of the most significant uh, legal decisions for Apple to come down in a long time, along with that Samsung uh uh, patent case. Right, but except it's going to be appealed, so we'll have to see if it gets it, it will be appealed, but the question is, will will Apple actually follow through on the appeal? Because, frankly, uh, you know, leaving a game or leaving, let's say you're in the Kindle store and you have to leave the Kindle store to go and buy the book. It's a pain in the neck, yeah. It's a pain in the neck. So, in a way, basically the judge is saying, if the people buy it through the app that was released in the app store, then you can get your 30%. But you can't prevent Amazon from telling people that they could go to Amazon.com. Well, provide a, provide a direct link. It's not just- Or provide you know, a direct link. You can't right. That's why. That. That's another reason why Epic is going to appeal it as well, no matter what. Because they well, want yeah, an even Epic stronger will. ruling. Yeah. Well, they also want to appeal the monopoly. But no, this this- People believe this will mean billions of dollars at stake that they would lose. It's not going to be, well, nobody will bother. Uh, it's not going to be that difficult the way you're describing. 
Uh, it's not as easy as if they could do it in game app, but we'll see. I think we just got to wait because it's going to, you know, it's got a long more way to go. Now, the judge did say, look, uh, Epic, you didn't really push on the monopoly thing. You didn't really explore that in the case. You did mm-hmm. explore the whole payment thing, which you were basically saying you're paying rent to Apple. They also want a sale of everything you sell in your store, which shouldn't be the case. You should be able to sell things in the store that you pay rent for uh, in that store without them taking a cut of it. So we'll allow that. Next time, if you want to make an argument on the monopoly thing, maybe make a better argument. So Mm -hmm. now the appeal would be, oh, we just have to make a better argument on that one. Yep. But you you know uh, what uh, Apple will get a cut of? Every sale of a Drake album, even though nobody buys albums. On, on Apple Music. On Apple Music, yes. Sorry, mm-hmm. yes. That was kind of a given. But yes, music star Drake. He just did it again. But he didn't say, oops, I did it again. He was like, that's right, I did it again. His new album, Certified Lover Boy, is a certified smash. Certified Lover Boy uh, is a bio album uh, telling my story, of course. Of course. Uh, did you see what did you see what I did there? I said certified. It's a certified smash. I got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, it's a monster hit. The album scored the equivalent of 613,000 album sales. That's essentially twice as much as Kanye West scored one week ago with Donda, which enjoyed a very big week akin to 309 albums sorry 309,000 album sales uh so what did drake accomplish really he's the eighth artist in history to score 10 number one albums on the billboard charts he has the biggest album since taylor swift's folklore came out a year ago he scored 743 million on-demand streams the most ever in a week except for of course drake's album scorpion so he couldn't out best himself well he Good. Yeah. Well, yeah. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. It's a big album that brings people back to the game and paying attention. I assume that the rivalry between Drake and Kanye West is sort of just a fake, you know, little publicity thing of two artists wanting to, you know, have the biggest album. But oh my goodness, if if it's a real rivalry, he just slam dunked the guy. I mean, twice the equivalent album sales, six hundred thousand rather than three hundred thousand. That is a serious, not even close. Not even close. <laughs> uh, but also on the charts, Iron Maiden is at number three. Cool to see. Lord, her new album has really fallen off the charts quickly. It fell hard and fast when it debuted just like a couple weeks ago. But it's all about consolidation in the music biz and like everywhere else. Live Nation just acquired 51% of Mexico's top concert promoter uh, named Ocesa or Ocesa. I'm not sure how to say it. But, uh, you know, consolidation is happening worldwide. Yes, uh, that's why we are joining with. Uh, this would have been funnier if I could have uh, actually had a come name. Up. Yes, yeah, yes, that would be. A, but you have to be uh, iTunes, an insider yeah. to really know who you would want to mention right then. iHeartRadio. That was the thing. I was tuned hey, in. Or, well, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, not anyway, tuned in. Speaking of insiders, you know, mm-hmm. it's probably time for Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Yeah, and in fact, here's this. how they affect you. Okay. This is all about what we spent hours and hours looking over going, does this mean anything? Does this mean anything? Does, right. Wait, this number, does that mean anything? Right. I got a headache. Uh, looking at Drake's album, they explained again how they calculate the album equivalent sale figure that they give of 613,000. I was like, well, you carry the two plus the four, it's streaming this divided by, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. But here's what I know. It matters what people are doing in music. You want to be able to promote your music. And all we want to say is, look, Drake's new album was streamed 743 million times on demand. We can all understand that. Wow. People went onto Spotify, Apple, and they streamed that album. Now, how they define streaming the album 743 million times, is it 10% of the tracks, 50%? That gives me another headache. But they're agreeing on a standard. Everybody's using the same standard in music, not the way they do online for streaming video. In music, they all have an agreed-on standard that Billboard is using. 743 million times. I can understand that. Wow. People around the world streamed it 743 million times. Stick to that. Use that. That's what people are doing. Most people are streaming. Most of your revenue comes from streaming. 84% is from streaming revenue. In fact, 78% of all your revenue is from paid subscriptions. The 84% comes from ad sales and stuff for people on mid tiers and things like that. So the overwhelming amount of money they're making is from streaming. CD and vinyl on Drake's new album, it's not even out yet. 
he sold 46,000 copies on digital, right? And another 5,000 equivalent of albums from people who bought individual tracks. So who cares? 743 million versus 46,000. Why are you even talking about equivalent album sales? Stick to the metric of the way people listen to music today, and that's streaming on demand. I haven't done it yet for his new album, but next week, Whatever number it does, it'll include the on-demand streaming that I do, and I will know, yeah, I didn't buy that album. I streamed it, and it's reflected on the charts there. If I play it twice because I like it so much, it'll bump up twice. Stick to the number. That, and you know what? $743 million? That's awfully impressive. Doesn't that sound huge? It's like 750 million people around the world. Now, one guy listened to it a million times, but still. Well, remember, there was the the big controversy over like people like, Press well, and play on repeat. Course, well, yes, and that's why they have new things that you can't do that more than certain times in an hour or a day. They realize that's just BS, and they and they fix that, and they and they monitor that and reject those and throw all those stats out because they know it's BS. They got to look for bots. They got to look for things, but still, they've got a streaming number. They verified it. It's an outsized third party source billboard that says it's streamed seven hundred forty three million times, and we can understand that. You know, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, so as as you know, well, how are sales going? They're not sales; it's streaming, right? Well, eighty four percent, and and they did release uh, the RIAA released. I told you we'd have some music sales news for you. Uh-huh. Uh, music, music sales, music revenue. Sorry, not sales, since it's revenues these days. As you just pointed out, it grew uh, one point five billion dollars, or twenty five. Sorry. 27 percent year on year to seven point one billion dollars in the first half of twenty twenty one. Wow, and and like. Vinyl is almost half a billion dollars in the first half of the year. It's like four hundred million and change. So vinyl is is great. That's serious money, but it's not the big part. It's not the big part. The big part obviously is from streaming. So that's where you should focus your attention. That's an easy number to sell. Same thing in TV. We're having big fights over TV ratings. Nielsen is giving us a partial glimpse of the most streamed properties every week online in the four areas that it can get access to in one way or another. Sometimes those ratings appear, sometimes they don't. This week, we didn't get them. Sometimes they include movies, sometimes it's released separately. I don't know what's going on there. We follow TV ratings for a living, and we have no idea of what the most popular shows are or even how to judge that. That's not good. Just like music, you want to say, oh, it's sold 4 million copies, or it's been streamed 1 billion times, or the video's been watched 800 million times. We can all understand that. You want that same standard for TV. I don't know what the answer is, but everyone's mad at Nielsen. But you know, how do we capture everybody, all the how do you capture all the eyeballs? They don't have access to your phone and your tablet. They don't have access to your laptop. They don't have access to what people are watching in bars. It's not easy. I don't know. And how do you count it? Just like in streaming, you gotta come up with a metric everyone will accept. Netflix's thing of like, well, they watched it for three seconds, so that counts as a view. Give me a break. If it's not a majority of the the prop of the thing, if it's not a majority of the episode or majority of the season, it doesn't count as fully watched. If it's not ninety percent of the movie, they didn't watch the movie. So I don't know what to do, but they do not have an answer, and they need one. And I don't think they realize they need one. I think they're just worried about advertisers, and they don't realize how important it is to promote and sell and publicize and celebrate big hits when they have them. Not easy to do right now because nobody knows what to say. Or even how to promote it. Do we promote it on TikTok? Do we promote it on Instagram? (laughs) Do we promote it on... I mean, it's just... Yeah, well, you know, here's my question. Uh, Are you a subscriber to Hulu? I am. And they're raising their prices to $7. That's Uh, right. At least $7 with ads, $13 ad-free. Are you going to maintain your subscription? I think mine is through a telephone company, so I still am. It's just part of my bundle with my, my phone service. They tossed in Hulu for free. Ah, okay. All but, right. But well. that counts. I'm paying for that money. They give money to them. And there's a bundle, of course, the bundle with Disney Plus and ESPN Plus and Hulu. That remains the same at $14. That includes ads on Hulu. You can't get the bundle with ad free Hulu. I don't know why. That's something they should explore. If someone wants to play $17 and get ad free Hulu on that bundle, why wouldn't you want to give them that option? What about HBO Max? They are expanding overseas. Streaming is where it happens. That's why we're talking about it this week. HBO Max is coming to Europe in October. They're going to launch in Spain and then a lot of Nordic countries, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, and Andorra, which I didn't even know was a real country. They have no plans yet for the UK and Germany. Other countries will be added in 2022, but UK and Germany, presumably because of 
long-term contracts that make it very complicated for them to unwind those and launch HBO Max. Those guys are going to be the last to come on board. But HBO Max in Europe, when these new countries will include HBO Max and in there will be Adult Swim and Turner Classic Movies. Will HBO Max in the U.S. eventually include CNN Discovery? Will Disney Plus ever include Hulu and ESPN and FX and everything that they can? And should they do it that way? What would be smarter? Yes. I'm just going to say yes to all of those. Because here's my question. We don't have Turner Classic Movies like on a, it's not a part of HBO Max. So what is it, like some separate streaming service? It's a a separate streaming service. If you have a cable (laughs) company, you can access the app. If you pay for it for your cable, you can access the app and get stuff on demand. You just have to sign in and do all that. But does it have the commercials? You can... No, no, it doesn't have commercials. You can also just pay for the app on its own. Even if you don't have cable service, you can pay a monthly fee. And it is separate from HBO Max. I love Turner Classic Movies. I have it. I mean, I feel like HBO Max Deluxe or Disney Deluxe, that makes sense to me. An Uber price of $15 or whatever, and you've got, you turn it on, and there's Disney Plus, there's ESPN Plus, there's Hulu, there's FX. Have them all, the buttons, and you go into whichever one you want. I think that's easier and simpler. I'd rather have one monthly fee rather than three or four types of bundles and what's over here and what password over there. I'd rather have it in one spot. To me, it makes more sense. Well, you know who doesn't care about streaming services anymore? Who? Liz McCann. Oh, that's true. Broadway producer and nine-time Tony winner, Liz McCann died at the age of 90. She is a trailblazer, of course, because she's a woman working on Broadway. She loved theater. She called it the theater community, not the theater industry. She started at Cherry Lane Theater in New York City in the 50s. She worked for the Nederlanders. She formed a producing and managing company. Ultimately, she would be involved in all sorts of legendary shows, mostly plays, and was key in the second act of playwright Edward Albee's career, from Three Tall Women Off-Broadway to The Goat on Broadway and a revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway with Kathleen Turner and Bill Irwin. I looked at her credits over the years from like The Elephant Man, Amadeus, The Dresser, Night Mother, Copenhagen. It was like reliving my life. Lots of great stuff. And she did the life and adventures of Nicholas Nickleby. I was 14. I wanted to come to New York. I had the money. And my family was like, what are you talking about? You want to go to New York to see a nine-hour play for $150? Are you mad? And they said no. (laughs) The great regret of my childhood. Oh, boy, did I want to see that. Well, another pioneer and another great female pioneer also died. Irma Kalish was one half of the husband and wife writing team alongside the late Austin Kalish. That's right. It wasn't easy. Her journalism professor said no one in her class would be a writer. You're all horrible, he said. And she said, I'll show you. Literally. They started in radio writing for the red hot team of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Nobody was bigger than those guys for a few years. And then when she and her husband landed a gig with Jackie Gleason, he walked into the room, saw she was a woman and said, it's off and walked out again and fired them. He's like, I don't know. Women can't write. They're not funny. He just looked at her and said, it's off and walked out again. That's what she was dealing with her entire career. When she was in the writer's room, which wasn't often, men assumed she was a secretary or did the typing. But she persevered, and together they created a lot of TV, a lot with Norman Lear, too. They oversaw My Three Sons. He co-created Gilligan's Island, and she became one of the first women to produce sitcoms in TV. The list of her shows is super long, but they did specialize in very special episodes, like on All in the Family. They wrote an episode where Gloria was raped and debated whether to testify. And another one where Edith found a lump in her breast on Maud. They wrote the famous two-part episode where a 47-year-old Maud gets pregnant and chose to have an abortion. They wouldn't do that today. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, that's true. See, we, could, we could go on, but let's end with her quote on being a woman in Hollywood. She said, it was always my contention that in order for a woman to write, she had to be twice as good as a man, which fortunately was not difficult. british guitarist legend michael chapman died at the age of 80 if you've never heard of him if you like john martin or burt jantz if you've heard those names check him out his debut album rainmaker is a great place to start and you can work your way forward or start with his recent comeback album 50 and you can work your way backward hey sonic youth loved him uh, you know, uh, I was really surprised at the outpouring of oh. of love for Michael K. Williams of The Wire. He died at the age of 54. Uh, I don't know whether they they have a reason yet. I think it was drugs, I guess I it, was, it, it was it drugs, was drug, yeah, an yeah. overdose of some kind. Uh, but he he was well loved. He was uh, on the miniseries Lovecraft Country. Uh, for, you know, he 
actually, well, I, I think, think it's technically for... a series. Actually, uh, technically, I yeah, made he's a up for an there. Emmy, right? Isn't he up for an? This Emmy? is his fifth Emmy nomination. I did not realize, and none of them were for The Wire, so I didn't realize how much success after The Wire he's had. I knew he was in Lovecraft Country. Knew he got that Emmy nod. I knew he was in Boardwalk Empire for a number of years. He was the leader of the of the Black Gangsters in that Martin Scorsese led TV series. Uh, he was in Happen Leonard, which I watched. He had an Emmy nomination for Bessie, a TV movie about Bessie Smith an Emmy nomination for The Night Of, a really well-done miniseries. He had a great career. It was just getting better and better. What a what a shame. He was working at a pharmaceutical company, but he flipped out after hearing Janet Jackson's fourth album, Rhythm Nation 1814. He heard that album and he just had to dance. <laughs> he quit his job to become a dancer. He said, I'm a dancer. That's crazy. And after struggling for a while, he broke in and ultimately danced on tour for Madonna and George Michael, among others. And you know they got the best of the best. He also was in a lot of music videos because he had a distinctive scar on his face from a bar fight that led to modeling work and acting as a thug in music videos. Rapper Tupac Shakur saw him in a video and said, I'm putting you in a movie and cast him in a film and he was off. And of course, his career is capped by the landmark TV series, The Wire. He played Omar, an iconic gay character who dominated every scene he was in. I love that guy. He was so good in that show. His character once said, you got to have a code. And I've been saying that ever since. It was Obama's favorite character. He said, not favorite person, not a good guy, but he was a great character. He robbed, he robbed the, the other gangsters. He was such a badass. And David Simon of The Wire has a lovely remembrance of him in the New York Times. We have a link in our show notes. Check it out and check out Lovecraft Country. Check out The Wire, everything he did. And uh, what, a, what a loss. And I have to admit, I was a little surprised and, and you know, of course, pleased at how well-regarded he was and how much everybody recognized. What a talent. And a five-time Emmy nominee. Uh, what a great actor. And, you know, we are uh, great actors, too, because we acted like this show was going to go on forever. That's true. But, in fact, it is over. I okay. had nothing. Could you tell the, like, no transition? That's all right. We're done. Telling our listeners that they can subscribe to us in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find us. And please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows it. It helps us out when you do that. Links to all the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to subscribe to us, well, they can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. So can ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That is D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Well, uh, actually, yeah, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter, at ShowbizSandbox is our handle, not at ShowbizSandbox.com, uh, just at ShowbizSandbox. And we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash ShowbizSandbox is where you can like our page and keep in touch with us. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. We have a website, showbizsandbox.com. They have a website. It is whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's you got to have a code.com. Not sure if that's taken or not, but if you have trouble finding any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Uh -huh.